Hey guys, Abel here. Welcome back to another video. And in today's video, I will be talking about training, but I think if I wanted to give the most accurate title to this video, it would be something along the lines of where to learn about training, where to collect the best information and how to get to a point where you can be your own coach and you can be comfortable programming for yourself and you don't have to anxiously wait for advice from other lifters or look for the new hot thing copy other people's workouts and all of those things. And I guess the subtitle just for the clickbait factor could be something along the lines of science sucks, question um, mark. Now, obviously, that's a little bit too long, so I will have to come up with a good title. But yes, I want to talk about science. I want to talk about the experience of others getting coached by someone and how valuable that is. And uh, basically, just how can you become a really autonomous lifter? So let's start with science because I guess uh, thus far I could have or would have classified myself as a member of the evidence-based community. Of course, I'm not a researcher, but I do value evidence. And in a way, I guess that qualifies me as a member of the community at least. And yeah, I, I do know more about research in the field of exercise science than just the average person out there. To answer the question, how useful is science? I would say amongst all the resources that I would consider for learning about lifting, science, as far as reading actual studies and meta-analyses, I would put it last. That's my honest opinion. And why is that the case? Well, the thing is, exercise science, while it has progressed a lot in recent years, it's still at its infancy. Yes, it's much better than it was before. Now we have more studies, higher quality studies, more people in the field, more funding. So it's going in the right direction, but it's still at its infancy. Before that, it was, I don't know, in, in the process of conception still. To make this a little bit more tangible for you, imagine if nutrition science, so everything that encompasses, but let's focus on weight loss. Okay, so basically research about weight loss, knowing the science of what to actually do to lose weight. Imagine if we were at a stage where we had advanced a lot, we discovered a lot of things, but we haven't yet discovered the concept of energy balance, calories and macros, okay? We do know a lot of things that, okay, this seems to correlate with weight loss pretty strongly. This seems to correlate with weight gain pretty strongly, but we don't know that foods have energy in them and that our body is then using that energy. Either we expend it or we produce heat or we actually deposit tissue. We have no way of knowing this and we don't know how to measure this either. But we do have studies which show things like, based on our meta-analyses, the biggest thing that seems to correlate with weight loss is portion sizes. So, you know, in an alternate universe, people like me would be sitting in front of the camera and say, you know, studies have shown that reducing portion sizes is the number one driver of weight loss. And then some smarter people like Eric Helms would come around and they would tell, well, okay, that's a bit oversimplified. It's not the main driver. It seems to be the thing that's correlating with it the most. And then of course it would be super annoying because we could easily find exceptions. Like, okay, I know this guy who said that he didn't reduce portion sizes, but he just ate a lot more veggies and he cut out oils and he also lost fat. And But, but then there are studies that go against that. So it would be very confusing, very annoying. We would have somewhere to start because this portion size piece would be very useful, but we would still be very much in the dark. Um, and then, you know, we could imagine if we haven't discovered macros yet, we would know that, okay, meat consumption seems to correlate with muscle growth. Like people who eat more meat seem to have an easier time growing muscle, but we would have no way of measuring protein intake. We wouldn't know the protein content of food, or we wouldn't even know that there is such a thing as protein. Well, 
the thing is that's pretty much where we are with exercise science okay we do know some things like okay volume seems to be very important for hypertrophy like in studies volume training volume is the thing that seems to correlate the most with how much muscle we are growing we also know that mechanical tension seems to be an important thing but we have no way of measuring mechanical tension like you cannot go to the gym do a few sets and say okay so like how much mechanical tension did i put on the muscle we don't have the tool which in the real life is calories when it comes to weight loss we don't have that when it comes to training we just have these surrogate markers that are very blunt and hopefully in a couple of decades or maybe even sooner than that we will have a much more precise way of doing things and measuring things but we are just not there yet and for that reason, we just don't have the perfect model for hypertrophy. And this is something I often mention here is that we don't have the exact recipe for how to train, how many sets to do, how frequently to train. We cannot tell these things for certain because we are just not there yet scientifically. All right, as you can see, I just teleported to a new location, but let's continue where we left off. So I would say that lifting studies at this moment in time are really good for two things. For one, they helped us confirm that certain things are just not a good idea. This is a good strength of science in general, that when it comes to showing us what not to do, science can be very helpful. For example, if it was not for studies, maybe we would still be more inclined at least to do partial ranges of motion, short rest periods, a lot of these things which pro bodybuilders love doing and they had all kinds of funky theories as to why these are a good idea. Science kind of just helps confirming that like, no, like none of these really make sense. So for that, science can be great. Secondly, while these lifting studies are not very good at telling us how to lift today, hopefully in a decade or in a few decades, they will be. Hopefully by then we will have good quality studies or high enough quality studies so that we can actually draw some pretty firm conclusions. Like, okay, this is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. And we can actually design our splits and uh, training setups based on those studies. Today we are not there, but the thing is we can only progress towards those much higher quality studies if we pay our dues today. So today's less than ideal quality studies are needed to eventually get to that point. So, you know, we are not really going to benefit from this, but hopefully the future generations will. Now, I want to stop here for a second and actually want to give you some specifications, like why exactly am I saying what I'm saying? Because I know that a lot of you are following people like Eric Helms, James Krieger, Greg Knuckles. These people are referencing studies all the time. Now, of course, if you're reading in between the lines, you will see that they are not giving you specific training recommendations based on studies. Studies are one part of the picture for them as well how high it ranks for them i don't exactly know but i can guarantee you if any of those guys were to coach you they would not be giving you a training split and then under your training log or tracking spreadsheet there wouldn't be a citation saying okay whoever v80 at all 2019. what would be the ideal lifting study if i could design a 10 out of 10 perfectly informative lifting study, how would that look like? For one, a training study would be necessarily long. By that, I mean at least four to six months. This is needed for two reasons. For one, muscle growth is slow. It's very slow. A one month long training study is about as useful as a one week weight loss study. Okay. Can you measure weight loss in one week? Well, no. I mean, if you're going on a diet today, then at first all kinds of things are going to be happening. You will be losing a ton of water weight, gut content. You just can't interpret that data in any way. Everybody knows this who is competent at this. Two weeks of weight loss, 
you can draw some kind of a conclusion, but I mean, still you're comparing the second week's worth of data to the first and the first week was kind of garbage, not very relevant data. So I would say it starts at three, three weeks of weight loss data is pretty informative. Four weeks is definitely better. So ideally, if I was to do a diet study, I would be starting at four weeks and roughly we can say one week of weight loss is about as effective as one month of muscle gaining attempt. So one month of training study is the equivalent of one week of diet study. Now that is for fairly new lifters for more experienced lifters. I would say it's more like three days of dieting is the equivalent of one month, at least of training in terms of effectiveness for their respective goals. So a training study needs to be long. If you actually want to measure some meaningful muscle growth, you need to give it enough time. So that's where it starts. The second reason though, that it needs to be long enough is that four weeks in the first four weeks, I can get any client to progress. Like you could send me the most experienced, super elite lifter that is natural, which means in one month, you cannot really expect any meaningful progress, but I would still make them progress at least in terms of strength. So if I experience something with them for four weeks, it doesn't really tell me anything. And that's what I tell them as well. If I can see you progressing in the second month, third month, then, okay, like at least that's an indication that we're doing the right thing. The first four weeks, I mean, there's a ton of neurological adaptations. You're going to make a lot of improvements. And then we're only talking about strength gains and performance improvements. We are not even talking about muscle growth. The biggest challenge of your training, and this is something that you're going to hear me say a lot, and you've heard me say a lot already. The biggest challenge is long-term progression and tweaking things so that you can keep progressing in the long term. If there's a training study that shows me that, okay, like for two months, uh, we could do well, that's great. But what happens after six months and a year, I mean, ultimately that's what's going to determine what you should be doing. Now, does that mean that looking at what's going to work for the first two months is then irrelevant? I mean, you have to start somewhere. No, it is relevant if the study is well designed, which often they aren't. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. What it means though, is that all that a two or three months long study can tell you is what might work for the first two or three months. That's great. But I would say that as far as your training career and your muscle growth potential is concerned, it's pretty relevant, okay? Because the biggest challenge of your training is managing progression over the long term. What's going to happen over a two month period is just not that relevant because sometimes you can make some rapid improvements here and then that same method is going to completely backfire in the somewhat longer term. And of course, one of the biggest limitations, not just that of training studies, but of studies in general, is that usually they are shorter than what we would like in an ideal scenario. The study costs money. You need to keep the participants there. It's difficult. So most training studies will unfortunately be something between two and four months. That is just not that great. Now, all of those limitations aside, if it was a two to four month long study that was otherwise really well designed, that would still be pretty good. But are they? Well, no. And this brings me to the next point. Who are the participants in these studies? Like who are the people that are actually being studied? And as you might know, most of the time, the participants are untrained subjects. Now, this is often used as a cop out like, oh, well, I don't give a shit about science because I mean, those are untrained people and like they need to do it on IFBB pros like me. I mean, not me, the bro that is saying this. Okay, this can definitely be used as a cop out, but unfortunately, it's a pretty damn good cop out, especially so when the results of the study say that X method versus Y method 
didn't make a difference. Like it didn't matter which one you picked, you got good results. What is the number one thing that is always said about beginners, rank beginners, untrained people is that pretty much no matter what they do, they will make gains. And that's completely true. If you think back to how you trained in the first month or two months of your lifting journey, probably you did a whole bunch of silly stuff. If you did those same things now, maybe you would lose muscle. At that time it worked because you were just so fresh to the stimulus. So if I read in a study that, okay, doing this versus doing that didn't produce a difference, it's like, okay, but what would have produced a difference? It's pretty hard with untrained subjects because anything will work. And just in case you didn't know this, that's overwhelmingly, we even joke about it with some fitness industry friends that, okay, like what's going to be in the research reviews this month, this time, what didn't matter? Because by far most studies just tell us that, okay, like this versus that doesn't matter. This versus that other thing also doesn't matter. It seems like actually nothing matters except for consistency and getting in enough training volume. Well, the truth is, that it's definitely not the case and anybody will know that who made it at least to the early intermediate stage in their lifting journey. Unfortunately, it's not just about showing up and being consistent and it's not just about getting in enough training volume. No, because if that was the case, then everybody would be progressing super fine and super easily and everybody would be making it to the advanced level without having to read any training book and having to listen to any lifting podcast. The reason why people like me are getting any traction on this platform is because the stock wheel spinning intermediate lifter is the most common occurrence in the lifting industry, maybe except for rank beginners that are just uh, doing all kinds of silly stuff and people are creating gym memes off of them, which is pretty mean, by the way, don't do that. But everybody knows that somewhere around the intermediate stage, we very often get stuck. Most of you probably know this, maybe you're going through it right now. So it is about a lot more than consistency and what we actually see in practice is that a lot of other things also matter. And at a certain point, you need to be pretty damn smart about how you're going about your progression. It's not just about showing up and wrapping out. That's oftentimes a pretty good way of just getting stuck and spinning your wheels. I was thinking about this, you know, and I was planning on asking Eric Helms that, okay, I'm reading in all these studies that this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. Training close to failure doesn't matter. Periodization doesn't matter. Then how come that people are not getting spontaneously super jacked? Because all the things that apparently do matter, I mean, most people kind of do that, that go to the gym. And I don't see a lot of people just spontaneously reaching the advanced level. And then I was thinking, well, do I need to ask that of him? What would he say? if I asked that of him. And then of course I realized what he would say is that what you're seeing in studies is the averages. These are the average results, but it doesn't mean that for you, that's going to be the case. And what's always pointed out in these cases is that if you're looking at the individual data points from which the average then is drawn, you will see that, okay, maybe the average was this, let's say the average was people on 10 sets grew three kilos of muscle, let's say. There are going to be some people that actually not only not gained three kilos of muscle, they actually lost muscle. And then there will be some other people who gained seven kilos of muscle. So there's going, going to be huge inter-individual variability, at which point one might ask, then what's the point of even publishing these studies? Because it's not going to apply to me anyway, specifically. Well, the answer is that it's just giving us a very, very broad kind of idea as to where to start. Because if someone comes to you and says, hey, so could you help me with my training? And I'm going to say yes. I mean, 
I will want to have as many pointers as to where to start the person as possible. So I'm not just going to say, well, just, just go in the gym and, and do something. You're a, you're a newbie, like you're going to make gains anyway. No, it's good if I can give him some specific instructions as to how many sets to do and things like that. But whatever I'm going to say in the beginning, probably I will have to throw that out after a month because things are just changing so rapidly in the beginner phase. And then in, in the intermediate phase, probably I will have to vary things up much more frequently because my initial estimate is probably going to be off. So if I'm reading in a study that, okay, like anything up to, you know, like four or even five reps in reserve could be effective for muscle growth. And, you know, like 10 to 20 sets seems to be the sweet spot for muscle growth. And that 10 sets is better than five sets, but at least untrained people can still grow muscle at five sets. That's useful. I would say it's not any more useful necessarily than just looking at the practices of some successful coach, like how is he training his newbie lifters, but you know, it's, it's another score for a reasonable method. So again, for that studies can be useful, but at the end of the day, it's still only showing me the starting point. It's giving me a rough idea or at least another confirmation that, okay, this is a good place to start. But the start is just the start. Again, that's not going to be what really matters in your training journey. That's going to be everything that comes afterwards. As I said it before, people are way too obsessed with the start. Like, like what's the perfect plan? What's the perfect setup? Man, like these things will have to change anyway. Like you're thinking way too much about this. Obsessing over what the initial setup is, is overrated, both in training and also in diet. But anyway, I just went on a huge tangent. The point is a lot of these studies are with beginners, oftentimes completely untrained people. And what's going to work for them is not only not super informative, but it's definitely not very informative when you're a very experienced lifter or even just an intermediate lifter. If you have been lifting for two years, like you're a different person muscularly, neurologically, and in a lot of other ways than you were when you haven't lifted a weight in your life. Anybody who has gone with a non-lifting friend to the gym and helped them go through a workout will notice that like, wow, like I thought that, that, you know, like a horizontal press like this, maybe with a machine, like it's impossible to screw this up. Well, of course it is possible to screw it up. Like someone who hasn't done these movements before, everything is going to be super awkward and, and just uncoordinated. There's a huge learning curve when you've been lifting for a while, like all of these things are intuitive. Your movement patterns are a lot more efficient. Everything is just firing differently what's going to be a challenge and what's going to be effective for a person in the completely untrained category is, is just not going to be that relevant for you. Just the other day, I looked at a meta-analysis, a training meta-analysis about one of these hotly debated topics. And this meta-analysis is cited quite a lot these days. And I just looked at the individual studies and was curious about the time frame of these studies and then the population that was studied in these studies. And I think it was like 13 or 14 different studies that were used in this meta-analysis. And honestly, I gave up after like seven studies because all of them were with populations like untrained college students, untrained elderly individuals, average age, you know, 70 years, plus or minus five years. It's like, okay, so this 70 year old gentleman is responding really well to this, doesn't respond too well to that. Is that going to inform not my training, but what my clients should be doing? They are less experienced than me, of course, but you know, an intermediate 30 year old guy has been training for three years. 
is this really going to help me make a decision over anything? Of course not. And again, that's not the intention, but it's important to understand that. And by the way, it's just good to remember that meta-analyses are often looked at as the gold standard of evidence when it comes to the hierarchy of evidence. Well, meta-analyses, if they include a bunch of studies like this, then it's basically low quality data in, low quality data out. And that's what we are talking about in this case. Maybe the other six studies were actually amazing, but you know, it's all meshed together with data like this. So what the result of the overall meta-analysis will be, I mean, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. And by the way, based on these things that the studies are too short for one, and they're often with untrained people, I have a theory as to why training volume is often turning out to be in these studies, the only thing that actually matters. And the explanation is pretty simple. It's that acutely in the short term, Training volume is the biggest variable, the biggest change that you can implement with these people that can have an effect. If you have someone do 10 sets of something, that's infinitely more volume than what they were doing up until that point. You know, doing 10 sets versus zero, of course, that's going to have a meaningful effect at that point. Training closer to failure as opposed to further away from failure, for example, I think is going to make a difference. It's going to increase the stimulus. If you leave only two reps in the tank and not three, per set, you're going to have more of a stimulus for muscle growth. But the stimulus is relatively subtle. It's not going to be this monumental thing that is going to show up as a differentiator in how much muscle you're gonna grow in the short term. Over the long term, over months, it would actually show up. And then of course there are other benefits I think to training a bit closer to failure. But if you just have someone do a bunch more sets in the short term, that's definitely going to do something. If you're not actually overtraining or injuring the person, then yeah, there's a good chance that in the short term you can achieve some cool stuff with it. In the long term, then of course, the stock wheel spinning intermediates then realize that, okay, just by doing a whole bunch of sets, I just end up burning myself out and just dreading the gym because I'm just there and spend two hours there doing set after set and I'm not getting anywhere. And that's the point where I'm getting the email that, hey, Abel, um, I've been stuck for the last nine months. I'm getting incredibly frustrated. Thirdly, there is a last big issue and that is highly artificial training setups which oftentimes resembled nothing like what even a remotely serious trainee would do in the gym. Some study where one leg goes to failure on the leg extension and the other leg doesn't go to failure on the leg extension, it's very cool and interesting. Maybe it can nudge us very slightly in one direction or the other, but it's very, very far from being a super informative thing as to what you should be doing on a completely different movement in the context of your entire training program. A study that says that 45 sets is better than 30 sets, which is better than, I don't know, 15 sets. Allegedly, they were training to failure. Again, I would really have to see that exactly how that looked like or more so how they were ensuring that that's actually happening. I can see it on my own clients. Like some people, when they see that they didn't have another rep in the tank, it looks vastly different than that of another person, you know, and, and some people just because of their experience level and to some extent also personality profile just have a much easier time really pushing themselves. And of course, training experience plays in here as well. Again, if you ever took a friend of yours to the gym and try to get them to train hard, you will know that as soon as something starts burning and feeling slightly uncomfortable, they will stop. I actually have a hard time yelling in my friend's face and telling him like, hey, like uh, lift, lift it, you can do it. 
in a study, I mean, you have to be extra careful because you don't want to get the participants hurt. I highly doubt that if someone said on the back squat that, okay, like I don't have another rep, they were like, oh, come on, like the, you have at least two more in the tank. No, probably they just re-ragged the weight, which is completely fine. But again, like how much can we actually conclude from this? I am not comfortable speculating about how well, you know, Dr. Brett Schoenfeld and his colleagues carried out this study, but I am very confident in saying that if you guys are going to do 45 sets of quad work and you're going to be doing deep hack squats and leg extensions and deep leg presses and you actually go to failure, it's not going to result in as favorable of an outcome as it did in this study, especially if you rest 90 seconds, uh, although it would be honestly fun to see. <laughs> So is that it? It's only three problems that we need to mention? No. I mean, there's a whole laundry list that's left, but I would say that these are the most blatant issues that we need to talk about. There's a whole bunch of issues left, of course. So nutrition, for example, how well is nutrition controlled? Most of the time, not very well at all. Most of the training studies, oddly enough, are actually unintentional diet studies. Like people are losing weight many times during these studies, which is cool because it actually tells us that uh, recomp is really possible. So they're losing fat while they're gaining some muscle, which is great. Um, it would be very informative to see what's happening if they're actually bulking, which is very rare. And for example, that would be very informative because I mean, a lot of us are trying to do that when we are trying to build muscle, right? Our strategy for building muscle is usually not that we're gonna diet ourselves to bigger biceps. Another issue is that published studies are playing the clickbait game sometimes better than some YouTube videos that are published. And let's say you will read that, okay, this training method produced three times better results than this other one. And then you look at the results and you're seeing that, okay, in this group, the participants gained 300 grams of muscle and in the other one, they gained 100 grams of muscle over three months. So basically zero almost in both groups. But okay, great. So, you know, you will see things like this and it seems like there is something grand happening here, whereas in reality, it's completely irrelevant. There are the odd studies that initially we are super happy about and then a few months later, we all look stupid because it turns out that there was data frauding. That happens, although luckily, at least seemingly, it's not common. So there's a lot of issues. Hopefully one day there will be a time when we can actually quantify and very precisely measure muscle growth just in the same way as we can very precisely measure fat loss and also the thing that is driving fat loss, which is the calorie deficit. We can make precise adjustments with that calorie deficit. Hopefully one day we will be able to do the same with training. How awesome would that be? You do a set of lateral raises and you would see exactly what just happened with your muscles. Like, okay, so I upped that thing, let's say it's mechanical tension, that went up by 15%. I know that I need to reach a total of 30% in this workout, so I need to keep going. And then you will get to that point where like, okay, now this would tip me over, I'm inducing too much muscle damage, I need to stop here. And that's great because back in the day I would have gone on and done, you know, upright rows and overhead presses still and I would have beaten myself into the ground. That's why I didn't progress. We are not there yet. Basically our tools are as blunt as if we were trying to count our protein intake by grams of meat and not grams of protein. That's where we are now and hopefully that will change. But for now, that's the limitation of science. So very quickly for the end, because this was much longer than I anticipated. What would I say? Like, how should you learn about lifting and what are the resources I would recommend you to make use of so that you can actually become an autonomous lifter who can program for him or herself and you won't be at the mercy of others who need to show or tell you what to do. I would say that books are pretty good if the book is actually good. 
and I would say that at this moment in time, it's really hard to beat the muscle and strength pyramid training book. Even if I don't personally do certain things in the exact same way, for example, I'm not periodizing in the same way, I'm not using deloads in the same way, but still, you know, I understand why things are outlined in the way they are there, because that book is not only telling you that, okay, like this is going to be your training split. So like, this is what you need to do Monday to Sunday. And then that's what's going to get you jacked. It's also actually telling you how to think about lifting. So it's a very comprehensive piece of work. It's very, very high quality and just quite frankly, amazing work. The work of Eric Helms, uh, Andrea Valdez and Andy Morgan helped him write that book. Um, Jeffrey Verdi Schofield, I uh, read his book as well and it, it's good. I do think that's actually some great work that he has done there. Um, hopefully my book, which is going to come out uh, pretty soon, is going to be better than both of those. That's a joke. It's not going to be better, but it's going to be different. For one, my demographic is going to be that wheel spinner, the intermediate lifter that is stuck. That's my target demographic with this because I would consider that to be my specialty. I'm a wheel spinner halter or an anti-wheel spinner. I think that's the biggest favor that you can do for something in lifting, ending that frustrating rut that they're often stuck at in the early intermediate, intermediate phase. And more importantly, just like Eric did, also Jeffrey did a good job with this, I will actually try to teach people that are reading this book how to think about lifting and really help them to get to a point where they can go out on their own, design a training split, and actually manage their progression. That's the biggest key in my mind, or maybe I said that about some other thing just a minute ago, but this is really the biggest key, managing progression, because without that, we are nothing. And then also modify that split and make adjustments on your own if needed, and if you're stuck with the split that you designed for yourself. If you get to this point, I mean, you're basically an autonomous lifter and you can still get a coach, you can still get guidance and mentorship, but you will not be requiring that necessarily to make progress. It will be more so a nice optional thing. Anyways, this was not about plugging myself uh, because like I said, those two books that I mentioned, great. And I would highly recommend you to check them out. Secondly, and uh, again, so this is super not a plug because once again, I will mention other names here. Coaching, getting a coach for yourself Ideally, someone who you know is specializing in the demographic that you belong to. So if you're an intermediate lifter, then try to find someone who is famous or known for helping intermediate lifters like yourself. Of course, you can also get a coach who works mainly with top athletes and, you know, like elite level bodybuilders that are super advanced and just getting them to the even more advanced level that's fine as well. Probably they will be able to help you too, but it really helps if someone is really solely focused on people like you, that's going to help a lot. And of course, like ideally select someone who is actually going to be communicative. They will respond to your questions and they will be willing to take the time to answer you in detail. You know, if it's someone who is giving you one word answers and it's like, okay, like, like don't bother me. Here is your split. Just run with it. Like you can ask me questions, but it would be better if you didn't. That's, um, I would say it can be good to get a split, but not much more than that. It's just a walking spreadsheet. So find someone that is actually compassionate and actually is ready and willing to help you. But I can honestly say that I have consumed millions of hours of podcasts, probably maybe not millions, but certainly thousands. I read training books. I downloaded some for free. I purchased a lot of them. And I would say that nothing has helped me as much as being under the hands of someone that I knew was good and could actually see their methods in real life. 
You know, if you're listening to a podcast with someone, then that's great. That's definitely going to help you. But it's very different if you are their client and then something happens in your training progression and then you're asking for help and then you actually can see what they're doing. And it's like, aha, uh -huh, so he did this. And then, you know, hopefully if they're communicative, once again, you can ask them, why did you do this and not that? And then you will get an answer. And that's amazing. I mean, you will learn so much. I did a lot of coaching under Menno Henselmans and Berge Fagerli, and I learned an immense amount. Maybe at times I was a bit annoying. I was an asshole. I asked a lot of questions and they were very cool about it and they always answered. And what I learned there still influences a lot of the decisions that I make in my own training and also in the training of my clients. So coaching from someone that is actually good and is actually there to help you and is compassionate is an invaluable learning experience. It's not just about getting results. That's of course the main goal, but a secondary goal is actually learning. These days I'm not getting coaching by anyone, although I'm actually considering it. I really liked the experiment of Dave McConey that he was coached by Steve Hall and really trying out something that is completely different than the way he likes to train. I actually want to do the same and uh, I'm thinking of a couple of names. Um, the prospect of getting coached by Brian Minor actually really intrigues me. So maybe he's going to be the one and I just like him. I don't know him very well, but he seems like a very nice guy. Um, so who knows, maybe, maybe that will be uh, what's going to happen. But I'm not getting coaching, but I do buy and pay pretty significant amounts of money per year for consultations. And um, that's something that's important to me. So I do those. Um, sometimes these people are kind enough to give me some free advice, uh, which I am happy to do that as well. Um, they're not getting on calls with me, <laughs> make no mistake, but uh, you know, some messages exchanged on some social media platforms, these things do happen. I'm always very grateful when that happens. So I try to do that uh, by the way as well. Uh, maybe some of you are watching this and I didn't respond to you. If so, sorry, there was a time when I got a lot of those before my Instagram got disabled. I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, I'm not kidding. Um, but hopefully a lot of you have gotten responses from me um, without me asking for anything. So, you know, actual mentorship, although I hate that word, is very useful because you directly get to access the brain of the person who knows, knows more than you. And um, I would say that at this moment in time, an actual person who works with people like you and has seen things experientially is worth a lot more than studies, even the best quality studies in terms of training. To me, if someone like a Berge Fagerli or a Jeff Alberts, both of them have been doing this for God knows how long before, you know, rest in peace, John Meadows, if they said something like, in my experience, this is what works better for lifters like this, to me, that's a lot weightier than a meta-analysis that concludes whatever, okay? That's at best is just another score for, you know, confirming something that I'm probably believing already. So basically that's, um, yeah, I think that's, um, damn. That's all I wanted to say. Just kidding. No, um, seriously, I maybe not the sexiest topic or maybe not even the most um, like directly actionable topic, but a very important one. And I don't think I ever talked about this, um, but I do get questions about it. So I would assume that this is something that's actually interesting for people. And um, I think it's actually good to think about where we are um, getting our information from, because at the end of the day, that's the lifeblood of everything. So 
Uh, that's what I wanted to say today. Um, I will try to be a bit more frequent from now on. Uh, it's been kind of ridiculous how infrequent I became. So with that, thank you for watching this. Uh, please check out the show description if you're interested in uh, getting coached by me or uh, do a consultation with me. New Instagram, at least for the next week, is uh, Able Fit Stuff. Okay, and I already have a couple of posts. Hooray. So yeah, that's it for today. See you next time.